Okay, good morning. Um, the reading this morning is from 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 28 through to chapter 3, verse 10. Um, you'll find that in the Church Bibles on page 1229, and you can follow along on the screen. Okay, so let's begin at verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Well, good morning again. Hopefully that's, that's on. Yes, good, that's on. I just thought as we start, I might actually kind of let you under the hood a little bit, so to speak. Um, what is it that preachers are trying to do? You may have wondered that and been sitting in churches maybe for decades and actually been wondering what preachers, is, uh, what preachers are actually trying to do. I thought I'd, I'd give you a bit of insight uh, into that. One of the things uh, that is the core of the preaching task is actually taking uh, what the Bible means... So understanding that particular passage, but then also understanding what that actually, what implications that has in the here and the now. Because, and you'll find it particularly with one John, he's writing about a very specific situation, a very specific uh, heresy that was affecting that church at the time. And the danger for us is that we look at that and go, that doesn't affect us. So why do we bother with 1 John? Let's move on and find something else that resonates a little bit more with us. Having said that, you'll probably find most of the Bible doesn't directly speak uh, to the situations that we face uh, each and every day. Having said that, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And so what our job is and what my job is and your job as listeners is to wrestle with what that text means, what it's saying, but then how it hits the ground 
in our lives. And sometimes you've got to do a little bit more work, and this morning is one of those times. We have a passage that deals with a very particular issue. In the church that John is writing to, there are a group of people there who are saying they have such a relationship with God that is of such a nature that they can really live whichever way they want. They can go out and do whatever that sin doesn't touch them. They've got like their spiritual Teflon on, and so they can swim in the sewer, and it doesn't matter, nothing sticks. That is what is happening. And I've been here for almost a decade now, and no one has ever told me that. So we need to wrestle with this particular issue and how John addresses it and asks, ask ourselves how we understand what John is saying to them in our context. Got it? You can tell me afterwards whether I've successfully done that or not. Nicely, gently. Remember the whole thing about loving brothers and sisters? Need to recognise that. Anyway, there are two words that jumped out out of this reading particularly. Right at the start, in verse 28 of chapter 2, John speaks of being confident and unashamed. Now, they are words. Uh, I have four school-age kids. They're the kind of lingo that teachers uh, love speaking. We make confident and unashamed students. We have groups within our community that want to be confident and unashamed. And we're told to have that healthy self-regard is actually really a good thing. Yes, this is the kind of rhetoric that we live in. We speak of this psychological security, this uh, you want to be resilient, don't you? That's another one of those catchphrases, resilience. Uh, you, want to be, uh, you want to have grit uh, and rugged tenacity. If you go to my girls' school, that is one of those things. Uh, and you want to have this, this secure sense of self, confident and unashamed. On a Christian level, this is the Bible speaking about being confident and unashamed. So not only psychological, not only in our here and now, but is it possible that our faith can give us resources to be confident and unashamed? Resources that the world cannot muster. Because ultimately, these things will come from our self-understanding. As we actually see ourselves, so we will live and act confident and unashamed or not. It's not easy, is it? Uh, I've met many of you uh, as you came in and uh, I might have asked you how you were and no one said to me, confident and unashamed. Maybe you will next time. Uh, it's not something that comes. And if you're anything like me, I know that sometimes the confidence is there and other times it's wavering a little bit. Uh, sometimes I'm, no, I'm unashamed. Other times, actually, I'd like to run and hide. These things, they're fleeting. They're elusive, and they're fraught with danger. How easy is it for confidence to overflow into pride and arrogance? Yes? You've met these people. They're so sure of themselves, so confident, that they run right over the top of you. How easy is it for being unashamed for that to become 
I don't care about any kind of morality. I'm going to live the way that I want and no one can judge me. Can our faith give us a foundation for confidence? For confidence and having no shame that is real, that is enduring, that doesn't make us arrogant but rather makes us humble but empowers us to live? Is it possible to have a basis for confidence that is real and enduring and both humbling and empowering? That's our task this morning. Our headings, the need for foundations, building those foundations, a better foundation, and building on Christ. If you've ever built anything, uh, you know it needs foundations, yes? Um, the last church building that I uh, was uh, the proud custodian of, as I was the pastor of Denham Court Anglican Church, uh, the builders uh, built that in 1838, and uh, foundations were an optional extra. They just flattened a piece of land and started stacking bricks, uh, and every time the climate shifted, every time there was a bit more rain, the ground moved because it was clay, the building would crack. We had these struts that ran front to back and side to side, and you had to tighten them and loosen them to make sure the walls didn't actually fall in on you. Um, but no one knew that which way you were meant to wind them at any particular time. <laughs> and so everyone just ignored them. And um, yeah, no matter, you, you, you painted the walls, and then the next week there were cracks through the walls. It, just, it was just one of those things. I was seriously waiting for it to fall down. Uh, and part of me wished it would, uh, so we could actually just get on and do something. But you want to make sure that the foundations work, as the builders of this unit block in China just a few years ago found out. If the foundations aren't up to it, it will not stand. And that's not just talking about buildings, that's talking about life. We can actually build our lives on foundations we can actually look to them for confidence and that lack of shame, that unashamed, that boldness. And it can be actually resting on dodgy foundations. Now, to, to get at those foundations, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to ask you to answer me. But answer this one. I know my life has meaning and purpose because. And if you don't like that one, maybe another one. I know I'm a worthwhile human being because. Just spend 20 seconds. Imagine I was going to come up with to you and ask you to answer, but I'm not. So come up with something. How would you know? Where do you go for security? When you're under attack, when things are tough, where do you go to reassure yourself? Maybe when things are good? What do you dream of? What are your hopes and your ambitions? What do you think about? What do you spend your spare time plotting and planning and working towards? That'll give you some kind of an idea. We recognise that if you came up with nothing, that would be pretty sad. 
that would be shaming, fearful, despair. This would be an issue. But I imagine most of us here would be able to come up with something. My life has meaning and purpose. I'm a worthwhile human being because of something. Now, our tendency, and particularly if you went out into our community and asked people, they would go to things that they do. They would go to their performance. But you, you are well-taught Christians, and you know that is not the right answer. And so you've got something about Jesus in there somewhere. But I would like to suggest that even for Christians, it is possible to lay a foundation in Christ and then kind of step to the right or to the left or front or back and start building other little shanties around our secure foundation in Christ. We can start to build our own foundation. Pick your work. Maybe, maybe work is the thing for you. And you go and say, uh, like one of my friends did, he walked into his boss and he said, I think it's time for a pay rise. Uh, bold man. And his boss said, how much would you like? Okay. That's one way of building your self-esteem, really, isn't it? Your boss is saying to you, you have such value to me that I will pay whatever it is, probably within reason, to keep you. It would be very easy for him to attach incredible personal significance to that work. And it would be the same for us. Maybe we don't ask for pay rises and get open-ended offers. But maybe it's that sense of significance of doing that job. Whether it's paid or unpaid, can I say, it makes no difference. Whether you're managing a household or managing an international company, we can derive our sense of worth out of our work. Mother's Day. Parenting. For those of us who are parents, we can look at our children and say, my life has meaning and purpose because look at my kids. I have value because look at my parenting. I have achieved. They are fine, upstanding individuals, so why wouldn't I be proud of them? And I can build my identity on that. Maybe it's your academic ability. I have a friend. His aim was to have more letters in the degrees after his name than actually letters in his name. Uh, he was a doctor, so he was cheating, so he was like the fellowship of the Royal Australian... Co you get to add cheat, cheat letters then. <laughs> Ditch those. But I think he succeeded. I think he succeeded. Maybe you look and you think, it's my T-E-R. Or it's even just the reports that my teachers are giving me. It's my academic ability, or maybe it's my musical ability, or my sporting ability. I sing in that, I play in that, I kick that, I hit that. Those things define you, and you go, I am a worthwhile human being because I can do this. Maybe it's your capacity to make heads turn. People desire you, and you know that. And that gives you that sense of value. 
Maybe it's status and image. Maybe it's the friends that you have, the money that's in the bank account. Maybe it's your religious performance. I am, I am serving God. I work in kids' church. I run youth groups. I give I read my Bible, I say my prayers, I evangelize, I do all these things. And we can do that in a way to build our own, our own status. Maybe it's our religious experience, maybe it's our community service. Maybe it's generally you're just a nice person. <laughs> People like you, and so therefore you like yourself. But at its heart, it's our performance that we're looking at, and that fundamentally, to put it in theological terms, is salvation by works. We feel good about ourselves. Maybe we're not even thinking in terms of eternal salvation, but we are deriving our, our self-worth from our performance. And when things are going well, we think we are great. And when things are under attack... Everything is falling apart. And the danger is that when things are going well, you will be proud. When you're acing the tests, test after test after test, A, 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 or A plus, A plus, A plus. And you look down upon those who are less academically gifted. Maybe it's your career that is being fast-tracked and you're leaving your peers behind. Maybe you've got the partner the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the fiancé, the husband and wife that others don't have. We define ourselves by comparison and it's very easy to get proud. It's very easy to get judgmental, to get very critical because my family is all together and I can see the flaws in their parenting. If only they would parent like I parent. If only their kids were like my kids. Very easy to look down on others. But when things are not going well, there's fear, anxiety. We get defensive when we are criticised. Has anyone ever put their finger on that sore spot for you? Maybe it's the boss at work who pulls you in and tells you that you're just not performing. You've got these KPIs, these key performance indicators, and you are not measuring up. Maybe it's the test that you thought you aced and you got a C, and all your friends got A's. Maybe it's the person who you asked for the date and they looked at you like you were something under the rock that they'd just turned over. We feel that, don't we? Whatever it is, when we are criticised, when our sense of self is threatened, we can often fall into despair. We can hide, we can justify why it's not really our issue, we can shift the blame to others, to other things. But what we find is that when we build our own foundations, eventually they will be exposed. There was a story, a real story, about a man whose wife and family died in a car crash. Christian man. And he bore up under incredible pain. 
And at the time, he testified to the goodness and the greatness and the mercy of God. And he became known across the, the area where he lived as this great saint. A couple of years after this, he committed suicide. Why? Because he had fallen into sexual temptation. And he had an image of himself as a great saint that could not deal with the reality of his sin. We may perform in some areas, but there are always other areas that will come in and undermine us and show us the weakness of our foundation. So how do we deal with it? Well, maybe we recalibrate. We just lower the standards. I was like this at high jump. Um, I could manage to get over the bar when it was about the same level as the mat. Uh, so just drop the bar, I'll make it. Yes, I can high jump. Yes, isn't that fantastic? God did not make me to high jump. I'm not built as a high jumper. But we set the standards low and maybe we justify why that's... It's my mother's fault. She fed me too much. Uh, mother's Day, you know, it's, it's all those things. Maybe, uh, maybe as Christians, we know God's standards, but we recalibrate them. We kind of just drop them down and make it, there's a good reason why, actually, that's not a sin, God. I know you make a big deal about it, but actually, it's, it's, it's understandable, it's justifiable. Lighten up. And there's grace. Remember, God, grace. And so, therefore, I don't really have to worry about living a holy life, because there's grace. And you can see this is where the false teachers that John is writing into. He's saying, no, you can't build your own foundation. You can't build a foundation upon your performance, your experience. You can't recalibrate. You can't use grace as a get-out-of-jail card, free card. Because ultimately, even though you might do it successfully for your life, judgment is coming. 1 John 1, 28. 2.28. Dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. What's John talking about? He's talking about judgment. And he's saying, when Jesus comes, he is going to look at the foundations that you have built upon, and he's going to test them. And you want to be able to be confident and unashamed. So what are the standards that God has, that Christ has for his judgment? Well, there in 7 and 8 of chapter 3, the one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous, that's Jesus. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. It's pretty black and white, isn't it? Right, righteous, tick, does what is sinful, of the devil, cross. Christ, you missed it, verse 10. This is how we know the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Anyone who does not love their brother and sister. He sets out the standards, particularly the brother-sister bit. This was division racking this church. And so he focuses in particularly on that. But what he is saying, that if you are going to build a foundation that is going to stand judgment... It needs to be strong enough 
to bear real scrutiny. Could any of us say that we have done what is right? That we consistently do what is right? That we have never done what is sinful? Well, John opened his book, book, didn't he? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So what foundation can there be for us, for anyone? If I can't turn up with my own self-constructed thing and convince God that I'm good enough for him, even though I can convince myself sometimes that I'm good enough for me, what hope is there? We need a better foundation, and that foundation is there in chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. What he is saying is that when we face Christ as judge, we stand before our brother. When God's standards are applied, we stand before our father. And we stand there as his beloved children. Not by our merits, not because of what we have achieved, but by his love. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us. He has rebirthed us as his children. John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says this. He says, I tell you truly, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Unless they are born into his family. The only foundation that will stand before God is the one that he himself gives us in Christ. Because Jesus is saying there's two families. There's those who are of God's family, those who are born again, those who have the new birth, and those who don't. John, in his, uh, in his book, he talks about children of God and children of the devil. John likes stark contrast. It's kind of like Mother Teresa versus Hannibal Lecter. It seems really extreme. We kind of want shades of grey. Well, well, maybe I'm not quite as good as I should be, but I'm not that bad, am I? John, by using very stark contrast, is actually highlighting, actually, the things that we explain away, the things that we don't think matters. They really do. Because when we seek to build our life on anything other than God, we are actually rejecting Him. We are turning away from Him, and that is the heart of sin. Sin ultimately is us seeking to replace God, and we can do that in God-hating ways. And we can do that in ways that seem to honour Him. Does it ever freak you out when you read in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, Unless you have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. The Pharisees, Paul says, being a Pharisee in Philippians chapter 3, that as for keeping the law, he was faultless. So we've got to do better than that somehow. We've got to get to that point. And Jesus is saying... That doesn't come through our own efforts. That comes through the free gift of God that we can be known as children of His.
What John is saying by these stark contrasts is drawing our attention that even our best deeds can be done for the wrong reasons. Think about a relationship. Is it good to be faithful in a relationship? Yes? Yeah. Okay. But if you're married and you have a lover on the side, your faithfulness to that lover is not commendable. No? But if we do good things, if we seek the right things, but we are not doing them out of love for God, we are giving to another what rightly belongs to God. So even our righteous acts, if we are using them to build our self justifying standard, our foundation under our own feet, trying to appeal to God for why we are good enough, trying to satisfy our own longing for significance. If we are going and doing all the right things, we can be doing them for all the wrong reasons. That's why Jesus gives us the great command, love the Lord your God. He doesn't say do, he says love Because out of love for God flows obedience. Out of love for God flows worship. Out of love for God flows the kind of life that God desires. And he makes that possible by giving us rebirth into his family. For God so loved the world, John 3.16. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gave his son. He gave his son so that we might become children. He turned him away. When his son cried out, the father did not answer so that we might never know that. He turned Jesus away so that he might welcome us in. Jesus himself was mocked and beaten so that the Father might embrace us. It says in 1 John 3 verse 5 that Jesus does away with sin. He does that by taking it upon himself and bearing its consequence on the tree, on the cross, so that we might never have to. So that the Father, the Father's justice might be satisfied as well as his mercy. And John tells us that this status as children is given freely and received by faith. It doesn't depend upon our performance. We don't have to be good enough. It is given to us. And in John chapter 3, he tells us the best is yet to come. Dear friends, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Our status as children of God is sure now, and it is, it is the best is yet to come. And so when we face life, and when we face judgment... We can do so with confidence, not based on our own faulty foundations, 
but based on the confidence of a child loved by their father. Hebrews tells us we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because it's our father that sits on the throne, not our judge, because his judgment has been turned aside because Christ has borne the penalty for sin. So our father, his father, will never turn us away. We can have confidence. Do you remember the great Charles Wesley hymn? Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. It's incredible. I can remember talking to multiple Christians saying, I can't sing that. You can sing it because God in his grace has made that possible. So what's it mean? What's it mean? Does it mean that actually the false teachers had it right? Well, obviously they didn't, otherwise we wouldn't call them false teachers. Um, Does our performance just not matter? Because if it's built on Christ's performance, on his work done, doesn't matter how we live. How do we build on Christ? John teaches us that our performance does not define us, but it does reveal us. It doesn't define us, but it reveals us. As we hate sin, as he hates sin, as we love what he loves, as we turn away from the things that Christ died to save us for and embrace the good things and the blessings that God loves to pour upon us, what it sees, what it shows, is our family resemblance. We bear the resemblance of our father, we bear the resemblance of our brother, Christ. And if we don't love what he loves, if we have no interest in what he died to set us free for, can we rightly say we are of his family? John says, verse 3, verse 9, he says, no one who's born of God will continue to sin. He's not saying that you'll never commit a sin. But he's actually saying sin does not characterize you in God's family. God's holiness and righteousness does. And so sin will become less and less part of your life and God's character will characterize you more and more. Why? Because God's seed remains in them and they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. John's not saying you'll be perfect. But what John is saying is that as we live in our identity as chosen, loved children of God, more and more that will shape our lives and we will be seen for what we are. Maybe the world will never see, but God sees. God sees. And as we think about, we think about the basis for our confidence. I know I know my life has meaning and purpose because I am a loved child of God. I know my life has significance 
because Christ has made me his brother. We go back again and again and again, and that liberates us to actually live for him in the here and the now. All those other things I told you about, the work, the family, the marriage, the academic ability, the power, the appearance, the looks, the status, the image, the friendship, the money, the religious performance, whatever it is that you are tempted to put in there, they end up enslaving you. You are never good enough. But Christ welcomes us in as a brother and the Father welcomes us in as children. Brothers and sisters, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes Lord, I pray for those who have yet to put their faith in you through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. Father, I do pray for them that you would show them the false foundations that they are building on, that you would show them the wonderful strength that can be under their feet to give them confidence and no fear as we face life and eternity as children of yours. Father, for all of us who have turned to Christ, all of us who have put our faith in you through him, Lord, we ask that you would continue to show yourself as wonderful, your grace as beautiful, and the emptiness of the things that attract us. Father, let us keep Christ and you, above all, as first in our hearts, which then frees us to enjoy the other good things rather than serving and being enslaved by them. Lord, give us your grace. Remind us day by day of your love for us, the manner of love that you have lavished upon us, that we should be called your children. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.